probably the biggest and first complaint that a lot of people have is that their knees hurt. There's different names for it, runner's knee or patellofemoral pain. This is the one that often begs, you know, the question in people of, you know, is running gonna make my knees worse? The short answer to that is no, by the way. That was Dr. Sylvia Lowen, and this is episode 28 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Have you ever been secretly terrified that you have a stress fracture? Wondered what red S stands for? Have trouble deciding whether you should run through that tendon pain or not? Today, we have Dr. Sylvia Lowen on the podcast. She is a sports medicine physician at the Pan Am Clinic, medical advisor to the Pan Am Running and Gait Center, and an avid runner herself. She joins us to help unpack information not only about common running injuries, but also some rather less common but equally important injuries. Dr. Lowen has an insatiable curiosity for learning and is a wealth of information. We know you will have many of your questions answered as you listen to her share her wisdom as both a sports medicine physician and a runner. Listen up. Here we go. Well, Dr. Sylvia Lowen, welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. Thank you very much, Kim and Carolyn, for having me today. Uh, This is an utter pleasure for me to have you on our podcast because we have worked quite closely together for the last almost, what, five and a half years now. And it's been so great to work with a doctor that runs, a doctor that loves treating running injuries and is possibly as passionate as I am about (laughs) about, um, the whole process of preventing injury and helping runners get back to running strong after injury. So I'm hoping as we launch this podcast, you can just tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you again for the lovely introduction. I, uh, as you stated, I'm I'm a physician. Uh, I do enjoy running, though I can't say I came into it uh, at all by intent. I am a Winnipegger who grew up uh, in the suburbs and uh, played a lot of street hockey and street football and whatever else the you know the seasons offered, and really didn't start any uh, organized sports until I was more like uh, more like in junior high with the usual volleyball, basketball, badminton, and my foray into running running actually came uh, in junior high when it was decided that the uh, the volleyball team was supposed to then attend the uh, the fall cross country races and uh, for those of you who know the uh, the cross country series is usually run uh, in about October or early November ish uh, with some coolish temperatures and uh, our volleyball team had no idea what we were up against. And of course, in those days, you put on your short volleyball shorts and we all hopped into one teacher's car because seatbelts weren't a factor in those days. And the whole team <laughs> of 10 or 12 of us with our gym bags would have been popped into somebody's station wagon and off we went to uh, wherever the cross country race was going to start. And uh, we all stood at the sidelines waiting for this uh, this race to start. And looking around, I realized that all the coaches were wearing their ski jackets and their toques uh, because it was only about seven degrees while our legs were growing redder and redder by the minute. And finally, the gun started and off we ran. And this was a 5K race. And uh, certainly as a... Uh, 
as a middle schooler, I had no idea what 5K was. So you can imagine how it went. We all kind of ran, stopped and gasped and ran and stopped and gasped and hoped that around every corner uh, that the finish line was going to be somewhere over the next hill or around the next corner of trees. And finally, 5K was over and uh, that was it. And I decided that I definitely hated running. (laughs) And that was it for a long time. And running, like I say, was not in the armament uh, of activities thereafter. And then fast forward that to a friend's 30th birthday when uh, when we decided that uh, telling all the stories of our glory days of the sports that we did play, that we should put together a marathon uh, relay running team. And this was a this was a March uh, a March idea, and of course the Manitoba Marathon runs in June every year, and to run the relay would uh, would have us each running a leg of about five uh, five ish miles or so, and uh, we decided we were a shoe in for that. Except most of us didn't even have shoes. Uh, we had to go out and buy some running shoes, and we did get together and run once a week on Sunday mornings. And uh, most of us couldn't run to the bus stop, so it was definitely a walk run. Sort of endeavor that we undertook. But uh, we actually did train up for it. And we we knew enough to know that uh, there was such a thing as carbo loading pre-race day. So with our new ability to uh, walk, jog the five miles that was required, we decided that we'd get together the day before and do our carbo loading. So of course, we ate mounds and mounds of pasta and mounds and mounds of water and showed up for our (laughs) relay stints the next morning, feeling more like uh, beached whales than athletes. But uh, we somehow got through it and you know running that relay was not an not a big a speed event for us but it was the first time that I realized you know what there's all these people out here on the sidelines watching watching people run and I like being involved with this this is very fun but of course that was the end of it you know relay done away we go and it just wasn't part of the repertoire and it stopped again until the next year same thing about March I was challenged to how about a half marathon? It's like, well, all right. Open up the John Stanton running room guide to how to run a half marathon. <laughs> Again, thinking that I was still a jock, uh, opened it up to the 140 half marathon page. So the one hour, 40 minute pace, not the two hour or not the two finish uh, half marathon page. It was the definitely, this is the time. And again, having no concept of anything and very quickly realizing that that was nowhere on the radar, but the race was finished. Not nearly in that timeline, obviously. Uh, and that was really the the start of running. And the thing that really hooked me after that was deciding that, well, if I've completed one, that perhaps another one was the way to go. Uh, and then I did run the uh, Canadian International Half Marathon in Toronto, the October of that same year, visiting some family. And that was the one uh, that truly gave me that sense of how euphoric it can be to be out there with other people and actually running. The way that one run starts is the half marathon people start first. And you run through a kilometer of people who are at the sidelines cheering you on. And then you run through the start of the marathon with all the marathoners uh, at the sidelines watching as you pass through. And again, it was two miles of just people lining and cheering. And that was absolutely euphoric. And from there, I was hooked on running. 
Oh, that story just gives me all the feels because (laughs) your introduction to running sounds so similar to my introduction to running that kind of like sprint and puke and sprint (laughs) stop and like hating it, hating it from the get go. And then sort of finding yourself on teams and and relays and things like that. And then having that one race that goes, oh, yeah, okay, this is what everyone's talking about. So I love it all. I love hearing people's intro to the sport, actually. But would it be fair to say that the half marathon became your favorite distance? Or, Or tell us a little bit more about some of the subsequent races that you did. Yeah, you know, it it did become a favorite, I think, because my pace is much the same regardless of the distance. So if I extrapolate it over a half, it seems to look like a respectable time versus uh, that same time over a 5k isn't nearly as uh, isn't nearly as exciting. Um, But I, I did join up with, you know, a group to run with. And the group that I was running with was training for a half marathon. And I met some lovely people to run with. It, it was always the group thing about we need to go for a run and we had our breakfast afterwards. That was just the social fabric of what happened on Sunday mornings. It was a long run, uh, breakfast afterwards, and of course, a nap in the, uh, in the pre, <laughs> pre-family days. Running really became the fabric of, um, of, of really a lot of my uh, social activities. And again, I, I met my future husband at a race, and we actually got married uh, probably two years later on Manitoba Marathon weekend. We, uh, we got married on the Friday night, uh, invited friends to come and watch run with us or to actually run the Manitoba Marathon, half marathon, uh, that Sunday morning. Uh, and that was uh, was definitely a personal worst for both of us and all involved. Um, <laughs> but it was probably one of our most fun. We had uh, we had a, a bridesmaid at uh, mile three serving mimosa. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> we had another friend at uh, mile 12 who popped a bottle of champagne. And so we uh, we did finally uh, make it into the finish, but uh, a good time was had by all. That is the best story. Oh my goodness. I'm going to propose that my husband and I renew our vows and go and do that. That would be like <laughs> the best thing ever. <laughs> this is so awesome. Okay. So you have done a great job of establishing your running background and the fact that you are a definitely a runner. We have you on this podcast because you are also a physician and we're hoping to chat with you a little bit later about some different running injuries. But if you can give us maybe just a few minutes of, of your medical background. Well, I come, you know, I come from a background in in, uh, in family medicine and uh, certainly had a family practice for a couple of years and also worked in emergency medicine as well as northern Manitoba. And uh, sprinkled in there was a year and uh, was a year in Australia in an urgent care there as well. And working in the, you know, in the emergency and the urgent cares, there was always so much of a feeling of the horse is already out of the barn. There's so many real issues that come in related to lifestyle choices. I mean, certainly there's there's a time and a place for dealing with those urgencies. But for me and what I wanted to deal with, I felt like I wanted to address some of those things before they became issues. I wanted to address really the the opposite end of that. And I fully respect and appreciate the people who do deal with all the disasters that come in through that way. But again, it was a realization that I wanted to be at the at the beginning phase of things. How do we prevent these things? And I really wanted to work with people who are committed to um, to developing that healthy uh, that healthy lifestyle and pursuing an academic uh, interest. 
that's awesome. I think the world needs more physicians like you that have a personal and professional passion for, for health and wellness and sport. So on that note, you are now a sports medicine physician at the Pan Am Clinic and with a passion for working with runners. I know you specifically um, try to have rapid access for runners with injuries um, that require immediate attention. So why have you chosen to prioritize runners as part of your practice? What do you enjoy most about working with your runners? The runners typically are people who are just hungry for information and looking at how to improve, you know, things. They're really, these are high achieving generally individuals and the achievement is different for everybody. Some people just say, hey, I want to start a healthy, active lifestyle. I want to start walking. I'd like to pursue a 5K or I'd like to be able to run around with my grandkids or whatever the, you know, whatever their goal is versus you've got other people who are elite and have some very lofty goals. Part of what I really wanted to do was work with people as they pursue those goals. And then often, you know, realizing that it's not uncommon for people to have a period of injury or um, pain that, or, or something that will stop or interfere or interrupt their actual running, you know, and so often there's this gap between, well, you're injured or you've run into a problem, you know, and that sage old advice of, well, just stop and just rest and you'll be fine and carry on. And I really wanted to address that gap of, well, what do you do with that time between I've got an issue and I know where I am, you know, I'm stuck now, but I want to get back to it. And how do I do that? So I, I really uh, was was interested in, again, addressing that gap, gap and then solving the puzzle as to why did this issue or this interruption to your training and your plan, why did it happen? And how do we address this puzzle uh, so it doesn't happen again? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm just like loving everything that you're talking about right now because you're you're very much speaking my language on the prevention side of things and and that runner's mindset though as we we all know as runners can become a, an Achilles heel sometimes yes. right that really highly motivated really driven person that does not like to rest, does not like to take a day off. So I'm curious now about whether there are any challenges um, or what the most challenging thing about treating this population is. Well, the challenge really then becomes how do I address the gap and what do we do? How do I tame that lion, you know, who's now raring to put all this energy out into into my activity. I mean, you're talking about the time investment. So for certainly for people who run regularly, you're often talking about 10, 20, or sometimes more hours of their week. So partially it's a time, partially it's an identity, partially it's energy consumption. And how do we then redirect this? Uh, there's obviously a physical component to that. There's a mental component to that. Um, and, and then there's the, you know, often the rehabilitation component to that. And a lot of that comes down to trying to then to reframe and say, okay, uh, you've got an injury or there's something that's not allowing you to run right now. What can we do? So it's not the, Hey, you can't run, see me in six weeks. It's what can we do? What can we work on? You know, so we try and build on those things, whether it be cross training or again, addressing whatever the issue is that, that got us into this trouble. This is what I love about working with you so much is because absolutely that we both 
as runners and as healers know that whenever you take something away from a runner, you've got to put something back in that place or, or else their mental health is going to suffer and they will be more likely not to follow your instructions. Exactly. So focusing on what can I do rather than what can't I do. And I, I'm, we got to know each other quite well, actually, at a running conference that we went to in um, in Massachusetts at the Spalding National Running Center. And it's it was a conference aimed at, at the whole re- rehabilitation and biomechanics of running injuries. And I was just blown away that a physician was taking this much interest in diving deep into not just diagnosing, but also managing running injury. So this is where I want to get into a little bit now is as we start to talk more about each individual running injury that we have on our list here, we have a few. Um, I would love it if you could go into a little bit about what what the um, injury is, what people can expect to feel if they're starting to develop that injury, um, how you diagnose it, and then maybe what they can expect for recovery. Okay, so let's start with soft tissue injuries. And I know this is a giant category of injuries, but also probably the most common one that runners experience. Would you agree with that? Yeah, so soft tissue injuries, definitely the most common sorts of things. And by soft tissue, we mean, you know, this is more of the muscles, the tendons. These are the things that will feel stiff and feel like I re- I'm sore after a run. And these are the things that will give you that post-workout sort of pain. You know, soft tissue sorts of things might be the, hey, I went for a jog, I wasn't used to it. And then a couple of hours later, oh, I feel kind of stiff, um, be it my knees or hips or ankles or Achilles. These can sometimes feel stiff again that next morning. You might wake up that next morning and realize, oh, I still feel kind of stiff. But these are the sorts of things that kind of loosen up as you start your day. And then you may feel a little stiff as you start a run the next day. Uh, you might feel like, hey, that that area that you know was a little bit sore before is nagging a little bit. But then as I continue my jog or my run, these are the things that loosen up and they feel fine. And people don't notice the issue while they're running. And you should be able to complain complete your walk or run. But these are the things that are quite adequately often treated with a bit of rest, some stretching, thinking about how much am I running? Am I Was I too ambitious? Did I do a little bit too much too soon? And these are often the times where people will seek out physiotherapy, athletic therapy, massage therapy, chiropractic treatment. A word of caution about using anti-inflammatories and Advil to treat these things. The body naturally wants to heal itself with its own inflammatory process for addressing healing and strengthening. And so if you take anti-inflammatories, you impair your body's natural ability. And especially don't take that Advil before a run, especially if it's hot and you're going for a longer run, because Advil and the uh, ibuprofen and the other anti-inflammatories can impair the amount of blood flow that goes through your kidneys and make your risks of dehydration greater. So again, you know, the stretches, the strengthening as provided by a physio or another allied health uh, is really going to be your best way of approaching these things. And again, the soft tissue injuries that you're able to to run through and seem to get better, those are fine to continue going through and just allowing that process of your body getting fit and and in shape to do the activity you want to be doing. 
Well, I think something that you said there, I want to just highlight it here because it's so true that a lot of these injuries, they almost get better during the run. You don't really feel them during the run, but you feel them after the run, right? So we don't maybe always appreciate or connect the dots that this thing might be getting worse with us running or we may need to modify, right? And adjust how we sort of add on that mileage or add on that intensity, right? Correct. So is there ever a time where you tell someone with a soft tissue injury, like runners delay seeking help in my experience because they don't want to be told that they have to stop running. Do they need to stop running through this? Or is it really just that thoughtful adjustment to their program that would really do the trick here? I think thoughtful adjustment is a very good term to use, unless it's altering your gait. You know, if Mm -hmm. you're so stiff and sore that it's really affecting how you run, that's going to be trouble. Then I would, you know, definitely stop and seek help. But anything that persists, you know, if I decrease for a couple of days or even a week or two, and when I say decrease, you know, I would decrease the amount of time that I'm spending doing it. I wouldn't necessarily decrease how many times a mm-hmm. week I'm I'm running. So it's actually good to do things on a repetitive basis, you know, three times, four times. That's an ideal period of time. But rather than 20 minutes, it might be that I dial it back to 10 minutes, right. get accustomed to that amount, and then gradually build up. You know, and in the running world, we use that 10% rule. You know, if I'm running for 40 minutes this week or four miles or whatever it is, then my next week really shouldn't be more than 10% of that. And again, to recognize that if even even if I've done the common sense things and it's not settling out after a couple of weeks uh, and literally more like that couple of weeks, if I'm not managing it, then do seek help with uh, with somebody who can help you with those things. Okay, so you, I want to highlight a couple of things that you just said here that I think are really important. One is that, yeah, you can continue to keep running through a lot of soft tissue injuries, but I 100% agree that when it starts to affect your running biomechanics and your running gait and you are, quote, limping, <laughs> that that is a point you need to um, pay attention a little bit more because then more things could start bothering you in other parts of your body. The ibuprofen um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory comment, very interesting. There was a lot of debate about this for years, but I think it's fairly well understood now that, yeah, a lot of NSAIDs are not good for runners. And and I can personally attest that I used to struggle with, with tendonitis and soft tissue injuries for years until I stopped taking ibuprofen. I can see it clearly now, April of 2017, I have not had ibuprofen since and have pretty much not had a soft tissue injury since. So can you give us any examples, like specific examples maybe of some soft tissue injuries that might be a bit more persistent or people really need to be mindful of not going too far down the road with? In terms of the soft t- tissue, yes. You know what? And in fact, let's even just highlight a few of the very common ones. Probably the biggest and first complaint that a lot of people have is that their knees hurt. There's different names for it, runner's knee or patellofemoral pain. But this is a very common one. And this is this is the one that often begs you know, the question in people of, you know, is running going to make my knees worse? The short mm-hmm. answer to that is no, by the way. This is probably the most common thing that we see. And it relates to the way your muscles track and control your kneecap motion. 
Uh, and really the underlying issue here is is hip weakness. You know, my knees are used to going in a in really just a, a linear fashion. And if my hips are weak, my knees may be collapsing in or out a little more when I run uh, in a manner that they're not used to. So it's really a matter of addressing the strength deficit and just letting people know that, you know, that there, there is a way to get past this. And it usually is glute and core. It always comes back to glute and core strengthening. Mm-hmm. Always. Shin splints. It's, it's a term that I don't like to use, but I think it's one that, uh, that people are familiar with in terms of that shin pain. And again, when I use that term rather loosely, again, we're talking about the the stiffness that kind of comes in at the start of a run and loosens and does not come back towards the end of a run. And again, this is more of a connective tissue issue where the muscles need to strengthen up in that area. And this, again, treating it with strengthening, strengthening the glute muscles, strengthening the calf muscles, strengthening the feet muscles. Simple things like doing heel raises will go to a long way to building some of the endurance for that. So I'm hearing from you that instead of stopping doing anything and complete rest, a person should keep moving and focus on strengthening. Dial it back to the pain-free. If I've gone too far, I'm having pain with my activity, dial it back. Continue your activity in the range that is pain-free and enjoyable. You're doing this for fun and health, so it should be pain-free. It should feel good. And just realize that maybe I need to build up some of the strength that's required for what I need to do. But Dr. Lowen, it is not going to be Instagram worthy if I put up a picture of me doing my my glute strengthening and my core strengthening (laughs) exercises. (laughs) So you're speaking to the very unsexy things for lack of a better term like it really is these fundamental things that we all on some level I think know we need to do but it's just always the last thing on anybody's list to want to do right to get down on the floor to get on the foam roller to to do the core work right so how do you impress that upon people well, it's kind of like, you know, one of the sports that I really enjoy watching is uh, is ATP tennis, you know, and it, it's kind of like watching the performance, watching the final, you know, we, we watch these events and we watch those two, three, four hours that are on TV. But what we don't see, you know, is the hours each week, the years that have gone into building that. And it mm-hmm. is definitely the unglamorous part of it. That that really goes into building that and you just you just can't uh, there's not really any way around it it's just the it's like the studying for the test uh you know it all comes down to that end mark but it really comes down to what did i put into it and how much time and effort did i give it and i think running is really no different than any of those things a few of the other sorts of things, you know, the common things, the other also being the plantar fascia or the Achilles tendon, you know, the same sorts of things. For the carnivores out there, you know, these, these are the really fibrous parts of the of the meat of the anatomy that don't have great blood supply. So you really have to strengthen the muscles around these areas in order mm-hmm. for them to move well. Yeah, I, I always tell my clients that it's a lot more fun to be doing clamshells and single leg glute bridges and, you know, heel raises and things like that before you're injured than after you're injured, right? So it's kind of that pay now, pay later type of deal. But, but yeah, I appreciate all of this. I mean, it's these, 
you know, proximal hamstring tendinopathies, even the IT band, we didn't talk much about that. But these are all the lower leg stuff, right? Or the lower body stuff tends to be the issues that runners have. Yes? Yes. By and large, yes. All right. So with soft tissue injuries, there are some statistics out there, but generally we say that 60% of all running injuries are due to training error, which you mentioned right at the beginning. It was that too much too soon, asking more of your body than it's ready to give you on a certain day. And if people just have patience and have a logical progression in their training plan and spend some time doing the unsexy things, soft tissue injuries don't have to be showstoppers. So Let's move on to the next thing on our list here, which is something that terrifies a lot of endurance athletes, which is bone stress injury or stress reaction, stress fracture. There's lots of different ways to title it. Sylvia, I know I've seen a lot more bone stress injuries come through my practice in the last few years than I ever have before. And I don't know whether it's because people are getting them more or maybe we're just better at diagnosing them now, but... I would love for you to speak a little bit about bone stress injury. You know what? I agree. I'm not sure if we are. I I think it really is a combination uh, of we do have an improved ability to diagnose bone stress injuries with the availability of dual energy CT scans, the advent of MRI. Bone stress injuries, you know, are not the majority of issues for sure, but can really account for about 20% of what walks into a sport medicine clinic. And bone injuries present and are different than the soft tissue injuries. And what makes us think about a bone stress is pain that is different than a soft tissue injury. It doesn't loosen up as you get into your run. This is the pain that gets worse as you run, as you progress in your run. It builds towards the end of your run. And in fact, will often stop people from running or it'll feel really terrible afterwards. It's not just the overworked muscle. It will feel terrible. It will affect the gait. Uh, People will often uh, progress. Well, if it's not addressed early, will notice that they're having pain even during their activities of daily living or even at night. And these bone stress injuries, they're different than falling out of a tree and breaking your arm. You know, that's taking a perfectly normal bone, exerting a stress to it that's abnormal. And of course, a bone will break. And I think we all understand that. But these stress injuries, they really are a continuum. Bone is just the same as your muscles. It'll constantly adapt and rebuild to whatever stresses and loads that you give it. So even just the same as going and doing a bicep workout, if I repetitively stress something, I transiently weaken it slightly, be it bone or muscle, but then my body adapts. And when it adapts, it builds it back in a a better and in a stronger manner to allow for those new stresses. So if I start my running program slowly, my body will adapt, my bones will fix in the areas where they're being stressed. And if it's if I don't allow for this time for my body to adapt, or if I don't allow the rest in between uh, the days of running for my body to recover and rebuild, then I then I stress my bone. Starting a running program, I'm going to have my normal bone remodeling. It will accelerate if I've stressed it more than it's able to handle. But if I don't allow the rest days and if I repetitively uh, stress it, then I'm going to get some strain in that bone. 
and that will be just the same as I might get it in my muscles. It'll be edema, it'll be swelling, it'll be a local reaction in the bone, which can further stress it and not form necessarily that complete distinct fracture that I might get, like I say, if I did fall out of a tree, but an area of real softening and we see it on certainly on MRIs we see it as edema and if people run through or if we don't acknowledge or listen to these yeah then we do sometimes see the the completed fracture they often start as a very uh, subtle type of vague sort of pain that will progress most common tends to be the tibia or the shin bone, but other areas can certainly be of concern as well, particularly the hip. They're not the fall out of the tree issue. These are stresses to the bone that come on after weeks and months of training error, doing too much too soon. I think this is a very important distinction because you hear the word I have a second question maybe embedded into this question because I'm we're calling it bone stress injury, right? And, and I'm wondering if that's a newer term because I know we used to call it stress fracture. And so the image that you get with a fracture, like, oh, I broke my bone, is that kind of I fell out of the tree and I broke my arm and I couldn't put any weight on it or I broke my leg and I couldn't put any weight on it. But what you're really saying to me is the presentation of these quote unquote fractures are very different than what we might typically conjure up when we're thinking about a fracture. Is that true? In terms of the visual, in the minor injury clinic at the Pan Am, we used to have the patient chart on a metal clipboard. And I used to describe it to people as the differentiation between the fall out of a tree. If I snap that clipboard in half, it's fractured it's broken in two. But if I take the same clipboard and if I sit and if I wiggle it, that metal is going to get that little sort of white line in it. Mm -hmm. And it's not broken. It's not in two pieces. It still functions absolutely fine. And if I stop wiggling it, it's going to be fine. But if I then continue to wiggle it, and if I continue to wiggle it and carry on, eventually, no matter how strong that metal is, eventually I'm going to break it completely in half. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. So the bone stress injury, I think more just reflects the fact that there's a continuum to what happens to that bone before the stresses actually break it, culminating in a stress fracture. And there really is the continuum of edema in injury that occurs before that complete fracture. That is such a great analogy. I love it. So how do you diagnose bone stress injuries? Is a bone scan a, a, something you use, MRI? Do you just take the clinical presentation? How do you know if you need to be worried about your bone? Well, yeah, that's a great question, Kim. In terms of making the diagnosis, we'll often find that there's focal tenderness. So be it on, a, on the tibia, the shin bone, or somewhere in the foot, you know, usually you'll have a bone that's actually very tender to press on with direct palpation. Some people have a bit of local swelling, or they may have a bump. If it's near a joint, you may have some affected range of motion. And it may be sore just to, just to stand on, or even to do a little hop on. People may have a very focal, uh, may have a very focal area of pain. 
Now, in terms of x-rays, you know, x-rays really miss 90% of bone stress injuries uh, until they really become a completed stress fracture. There we may see it, but often 90% of the time we miss it on the initial, on the initial x-ray. So generally, we don't wait for the x-ray findings before we treat, you know, and which usually involves offloading that joint. But the more definitive tests, certainly for a stress fracture that we want to know about, the bone scan that you alluded to, we used to use them a lot more previously, but those are, you know, they're invasive. They need an intravenous uh, injection of a gadolinium, and they're not terribly anatomically specific. So with the advent of St. Boniface having a dual energy CT scanner, we can often pick up uh, a lot of the bone edema. That one is uh, a better test for somebody who's not a good MRI candidate, whether, you know, be it pacemaker or having uh, any uh, metal implanted in their body. But generally, the standard uh, best diagnostic tool would be an MRI. And, and fortunately, in Manitoba, we do have uh, the ability to MRI these uh, these injuries. And MRI is actually able to grade the extent to which we have edema and changes in the bone. So it comes back to that continuum idea. Do I just have a little bit of swelling in my bone? Do I have a lot of swelling in my bone? Um, are we seeing the starts of an actual fracture line? And the amount of edema that we see um, also correlates with how severe this is and how long is that particular injury going to take to resolve. You just mentioned knowing how long the injury is going to take to resolve. In some of the higher risk stress fractures, like femoral neck stress fracture or pelvic stress fractures, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you may want to retest after a period of time has passed to to see what extent healing has occurred. And forgive me if I'm wrong, but an MRI could be repeated at six or 12 weeks and give you another good status check as to where that bone is healing. But a bone scan could potentially be positive for much longer because of what's left in the system from that scan. Is that true? So a bone scan indicates activity. So that fracture is going to be healing for three to six months. So that bone scan will remain positive. Um, in terms of re-imaging with an MRI, you know, the six weeks is really much too soon. You alluded to the uh, relative risk of certain fractures. And you're absolutely correct that there are uh, a few specific stress fractures that prior to, you know, really engaging in a rehab program uh, that we'd want to ensure that a lot of that bone edema has settled out. And that might be at three, four, five months down the road that we want to ensure that it fits with our clinical finding. Now, in terms of stress fractures, there are different types uh, of stress fractures. Uh, there are, you know, rather common uh, ones that can occur in the metatarsals or in the feet uh, that we would call lower risk ones. And these will often settle out with reducing my activity into the pain-free range, gradually building up and, you know, over six to eight weeks under the guidance of a physio-athletic therapy, uh, gradually resuming my activity and again, coupling that with what were my strength deficits? How did I get into this trouble? Others take a little bit longer. And then the ones that we really worry about, the high-risk ones. 
When it comes to taking taking a history that might be pertinent for a stress fracture, you know, we look at things I like to know is how experienced is the runner? We know that novice runners certainly are at a greater risk for injury, be it soft tissue or bone stress injuries. We know that, you know, st- statistics have uh, have been gathered that will show that novice 10K runners, you know, have a 30% greater injury risk than a more experienced runner. Novice marathoners have more than an 85% injury rate compared to somebody who's experienced. And novice meaning somebody who's been running for less than three years. Um, when it comes to increased risks for things like stress fractures, it can relate to recent increases in the frequency of your running or the distance or the intensity density. Often people will have recently changed the running surface on which they're training or the type of footwear that they're using. Running mileage, certainly, you know, there's a a proportional increase with the amount of mileage that's run. Generally being over 20 miles a week has been associated with uh, increased risk of stress fracture. Anybody who has had a prior stress fracture is a very high risk for having having another one. Females tend to be a greater risk than males, and certainly menstrual history is an important part of defining risk for having having a stress fracture, particularly people who are missing periods are at a greater risk, or people who have delayed onset of periods. Nutrition, I take a nutritional history. Do people have milk in their diet? People who have less milk or calcium are more prone to stress fractures. Anybody with vitamin D deficiency, uh, anybody with a medical history that may impair the absorption of nutrients. So people with celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease. Sleep is certainly an important parameter in terms of my body healing. And for people who've got significant sleep issues due to relate, you know, recent changes in lifestyle or work demand, um, even if they've been training the same, can have increased risk for stress fractures. And then medications, common medications, things like antacids or medications that people will take for stomach acid, they'll impair absorption of nutrients that are protective to the bone. And then there are certainly other sorts of things that, you know, that we think about just biomechanically and perhaps a leg length that discrepancy that needs to be addressed or a certain foot type or a foot strike pattern. So that, that would be certainly part of the, of the history that would be taken in terms of how can we address uh, the prevention well, I imagine with this super comprehensive intake, it sounds like you it's very holistic. You're looking at everything, right? You're looking at stress and sleep and nutrition and you're doing all of the diagnostics and all of that stuff is going to start to help you paint a picture of where to go with the treatment. So it's not just like you have a bone injury. It's going to take this many months to heal. Sit on your butt till then and I'll see you <laughs> in three months. It, it doesn't sound like that at all. It sounds like depending on all of these presenting factors, you're taking all of that into consideration to build your treatment plan. Is that accurate? That would be accurate. That's correct. And those are part of the things that we address during that time of, okay, you can't be running, but here's the things that we need to, we need to refuel and correct. Yeah, which, which again, back to what we were talking about earlier, really makes that runner who is type A, who does want to be doing something to 
progress, for lack of a better word all the time, is that they can still feel like they're doing something and they're making headway even if they're in a boot or whatever it is. The treatment, once we've got a bone stress injury, you know, there often is a delay of time where a period of time where you can't be running. And this is where cross training often comes in. So options are things like cycling, deep water pool running, and again, working on straight up strengthening in terms of how and when can I get back? Well, it depends on the type and the the high versus low risk nature of a stress fracture. A lot of the usual stress fractures, after you've had one to two weeks of, I'm walking around, I forgot my, where my injury is, I feel fine day to day life, I generally tell people to start a walking program and to go out and this is a walk with intent three or four times a week, put your running shoes on, go for a five minute walk, then go for a 10 minute walk, then go for a 15 minute walk and build it up in a manner over a couple of weeks that feels comfortable into a timeline that might be 30 or 40 minutes or in the realm of the duration of what your runs might be. And once you're walking comfortably three or four times a week at the 30 or 40 minutes, then introduce runs into those walks. So with 30 minutes of walking, I might be doing two minutes of running in the middle of it, which then becomes four minutes of running in the middle of it, which then becomes six minutes of running in it, and so on. And so it ends up being a six to eight week program, but I slowly and gradually get back into things. There are a few stress fractures, particularly relating to the hip and relating to the tibia, the shin bone, which do not follow this protocol at all. They take much longer. It's not uncommon with people with tibial stress fractures or hip fractures to be on crutches or non-weight bearing at all for several weeks or even a couple of months, uh, and then starting back to their activity in a much more graduated fashion. There's a certain type of tibia fracture, particularly relating to the anterior cortex, where these can take one to two years even to get back to your previous level of activity. And hips uh, can sometimes fall into that same realm. So some of these do need to be followed and managed uh, very carefully and, and very slowly. But again, the lower, the lower risk ones uh, or the more common stress fractures will often resolve uh, with six to eight weeks of appropriate graduated return. Now, there's a few things that you can do actually to, uh, to prevent your risk for things like bone stress injury. Number one would be replacing your worn out shoes. Replace them every three to 500 miles uh, or every six months. They've done studies that if you have at least two pairs of shoes in your rotation, meaning that you used at least two different shoes during your week of running, that you decrease your risk of running injury by 40%. People often ask, what's the optimal shoe? What's the best shoe? And really the answer is different for everybody. Your optimal shoe really complements your movement pattern. When uh, Dr. Taunton looked at a lot of these shoe fit issues, what they found was that uh, when they took novice runners and just arbitrarily put them to either a, a neutral shoe, a stability shoe, or a motion control shoe, more issues came up with the motion control group compared to the neutral or the stability. So 
most people are going to fall into that regular shoe category unless there's a particular reason for them to have uh, certainly a bulkier shoe. The goal being, again, you know, whatever whatever really complements your type of movement pattern. And to quote uh, Dr. Irene Davis, a uh, physiotherapist from uh, Boston, Massachusetts, your goal really is a well-aligned, soft landing. And it's really however you can achieve that. Um, in terms of rehabilitation, you know, if you're getting back to a running program, you want to really look at a very predictable terrain because that way you can keep your stride more consistent. Um, but once you're healthy, that variety truly is the spice of life. So once you are healthy, you really do want to train on a variety of surfaces. Reed Ferber did a, uh, Dr. Reed Ferber did a study of this in about 2010, and you do really want to be outdoors more so than just on the treadmill. I always tell, I describe it to people as my gait is a little bit wonky, the ground is a little bit wonky, uh, we balance each other out, and then the more apt I am to take on those, those little irregularities, the more adaptable I become and more resilient to injury. For some people, custom foot orthotics may be an issue in the short term or the long term. Uh, it's something to think about, but uh, not necessarily for everyone. How much are you seeing the diet of people, like you mentioned it a little bit, but there's never been a a time in history where we're all more confused about what to eat, (laughs) like all these diets, fad diets and things that come and go. And and how much are you seeing that play into bone stress injuries? Yeah, I'm certainly not a dietitian. You know, I certainly will do the screening and refer on, you know, as as required. But I think I think there's a significant impact uh, with all of these things, you know, certainly adequate calcium, adequate vitamin D and adequate caloric intake. And we can discuss a little bit more about this down the road when we talk about uh, a relative energy deficiency. Yeah, let's go into that now, if you don't mind, because I think that that one is it's not like we can have a MRI and know if we're in relative energy deficiency, right? It's it's a little more subtle. This is even a relatively new term for people that maybe used to hear about it as the female athlete triad. It has been updated to red S, which stands for relative energy deficiency in sport. And it's more of an inclusive name, isn't it? Because it doesn't, this happens to males as well. Correct. And that's exactly, you know, I think it was first recognized in about 2005 as the female athlete triad. And at that time, it was defined as disordered eating, irregular periods, and low bone density. And you're absolutely right, you know, that just really doesn't reflect all involved. And then again, there's a continuum. At one end, you've got complete disorder, but there's all levels of uh, gradation in between. And the low energy availability, essentially, you know, I always look at this like a like a checking account you know uh, I've got to put my money in and then I've got to pay my bills and I've got to pay the mortgage and the utilities and buy the food and I've got to save some and then I've got some left over for my indulgences and it really comes to the same effect when I talk about running I've got to eat because I need to function. My body needs to work and do all of its basal metabolic functions. I need to perform my life. I need to perform my work duties. And then running really comes on top of that. And I then need to have this extra energy that needs to be factored in. 
And that's where we get into the relative energy. So I may be eating absolutely fine if I was just living my daily life, but for exercise and especially a lot of exercise, heavy exercise and trying to achieve some rather elite goals, I need to eat more. It's not just volume more. It needs to be both nutrient dense and it needs to be very caloric dense. Mm-hmm. And so how would someone, because I, I do think this is the distinction right here because people are, are going, oh, well, I don't have disordered eating. I'm eating just fine. Look at all this food that I'm eating. It might be that they're eating a great balanced diet that's very nutrient dense, but they're not eating enough. And I think I have fallen into this if I'm looking back in the past. And it's true, like you don't want to be accused of having an eating disorder necessarily if that's not it. It's just that you're not eating enough relative to the amount of output that you're doing. Am I hearing you correctly on that? Correct. And and I think a lot of the low energy availability can be quite unintentional. I mean, if you think about a lot of our adolescent uh, athletes, they're um, not necessarily, you know, eating the breakfast, lunches on the run at school, and then my sports are after and my sports and hockey and running and whatever is after school. And, you know, what have they put in the tank in in the daytime? And again, it's certainly not by intent. It's just not necessarily on the regular uh, schedule for them. So how would people know if they were like, oh, I think I might be in falling into this trap, but how do I kind of know this? Can I measure it? Is it by measuring food intake, like keeping a food journal? Like what would you sort of advise on next steps here? Well, I think for people who are very active and have a high output, I think for anybody certainly who's competitive, for you to have a sport dietitian to review things with you, I think is going to be mm-hmm. the best way to tackle that. And again, I, I'm by no means a dietitian. But in terms of knowing that, hey, there's a bit of a problem, for women it's easier because having a regular monthly period is indicative of the fact that your hormone, that your hormonal milieu, that your body is functioning with all systems going and that we're achieving an adequate input and output. There's no similar reflection for the male athlete. Mm-hmm. And it's really only been more recently studied. And again, again, it's not as easily measured, but we know that the same thing issues do exist. Right. So for women, it's definitely taking the menstrual history. Are they missing periods? Are they more variable? And eating, again, it's a matter of enough caloric load or weight gain, potentially just to ensure that you're having regular cycles will often indicate that everything else is adequate as well. Okay. And how about for men? So for men, again, like I say, there's there's not the same parameter. We know that we know that when the activity exceeds what I've got taking in, we know that there's an effect on male testosterone. Uh, the Norwegians actually did a study of uh, elite uh, elite male endurance athletes, and they took this elite crew who was putting in hours each week, and they actually measured uh, measured sperm counts prior, and then doubled their weekly mileage output for a period of several weeks, and then 
measured them afterwards. And what they found was that there was a significant reduction in testosterone levels and sperm counts. And then that only improved after about three months of getting back to a more usual training routine. So again, the parameters in terms of men, they're not as easily measured and not as obvious, but something to think about, especially when we see males with stress injuries, even recurrent soft tissue injuries, really looking at what's going in versus what I'm trying to put out and addressing some of these uh, issues. You know, as a medical professional, I look at it from the standpoint of, you know, how, how is this affecting this person's bone mass? You know, if they're a teenage athlete, are they going to attain their peak bone mass, which really occurs between the, the ages of 18 and 20? You know, are they going to maintain that bone mass? But looking at, you know, when you talk to young athletes, if you talk about bone mass, they're not interested. And I think really this then has to be correlated with some of the studies that look at, well, what is of interest to my athlete? And that's performance. And studies have links, you know, things like the menstrual periods with performance. For instance, they looked at another endurance sport, uh, swimmers, actually. They looked at uh, the teenage swimmers, those who are ovulatory and anovulatory are not having regular cycles. And those who were not having regular cycles, their performance, their peak times actually decreased by 10%. Um, And that was really reflective of, again, that energy deficit, not eating enough, not taking enough calories to support what you want to be putting out. And so I think when you look at things like that and say, hey, your performance is going to be affected or your muscle mass, your muscle mass isn't going to be as great. Your training isn't going to be as effective. You know, we get more fatigue when we're not putting enough gas in the tank, so to speak. And, you know, you're deficient as well when, you know, you're getting more of the coughs and colds. The immune function can be affected as well. And just the feeling of of fatigue, there's a greater psychological burden to stress and anxiety as well if I'm not, uh, if I'm not maintaining all of my caloric intake. And in terms of diet and what needs to be in the diet, a lot of people have gone towards a higher protein or a more ketogenic type of diet. This, and again, it you know, really requires discussing it with, uh, with a dietitian. This may be one approach for the more mature person who says, hey, I, you know, I've got issues with glycemic or blood sugar control. My body mass index is higher. I want to start walking. I want to start exercising. And I want to maintain my sugars. There may be a place for a lower carbohydrate a higher protein based diet in these individuals, but not for the younger athletic or for the elite elite athletic population. We know that a low carbohydrate diet decreases growth hormone, which is really important for muscle building. You know, people who don't take in enough calories often become anemic. And again, we have an increased infection and illness rate. And if infection and illness are going to impair my training, then that's something I want to avoid. And the carbohydrates are really what's important for that burst of energy uh, right at the finish line. That's, That's where the carbohydrates come in, as opposed to those slow burn proteins and and ketogenic uh, foods. 
And so there really is, there's, there's no standard guidelines um, at this point to really determine exactly what an energy availability looks like. And so addressing the inverses out is going to be a matter of, again, making sure that my weight is stable, that I'm not losing weight, maintaining hormonal menstrual function, and a note uh, in terms of menstrual regularity, the oral contraceptive pill is detrimental in terms of its effect on bone mineral density through androgen suppression and not ideal and actually compromises the growth of long bones uh, in adoles adolescence by being somewhat associated with permanent or early closure of the physis. So not an ideal option. Uh, obviously, from a birth control standpoint, it may be required, or there are other options as well. But again, not to mask or not to use the oral contraceptive for that factitious appearing of actually having a period. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, this is all so fascinating. And and honestly, from from a personal standpoint, if I can just add my two cents here, with respect to, to Red S, sometimes just that little bit of tracking can be super helpful because you get into your routine or I, I'll speak for myself. I I've gotten into a routine where I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm running. I'm just used to doing all this running and I feel like I'm eating enough. And the moment that I track it and actually see, holy smokes, like I only ate 1500 calories today. And I went for, you know, 10 K run a 20 K run, like whatever it is, it's, it's that I didn't feel hungry necessarily. And I thought I was eating enough, but sometimes just seeing it in black and white for some people can be the thing to go, okay, okay. And just give them that confidence. Like for some people, it's a fear of eating too much. For me, it's more like, I just don't really get that hungry. My hunger mechanism or something is like off. And so I find it hard to eat enough when I do increase my training. So I think those can be helpful helpful steps for people along with all of the other ones that you've included. So thank you for that. All right. So you've done an amazing job at summarizing some types of running injuries that people might be worried about or have dealt with in their running history. In a sentence or two, can you summarize your top advice for an injured runner? Listen to your body. Listen to your pain. You can fool your parents. You can fool your coaches but really only you know what you're feeling and you need to listen to that sooner rather than later. And when it comes to the recovery from these issues, from, from whatever has derailed you, just always remember that nothing in life is linear and allow rest breaks, allow time for your body to recover. Yeah, such great advice because I think though like again those runners that we always want to be doing something, we always want to be trying harder and putting up those glamorous workouts, but I think deep down everybody really does know when there's red flags going off, right? That that they should be listening to more. So, love that advice. And just bringing it back to you, what's what's next for you? Do you have any I know races are kind of starting to come back on the calendar in sort of that hybrid fashion in 2021. Do you have anything planned that's exciting you? 
Well, the big goal would be the Winnipeg Fire Paramedic uh, Half Marathon. Mm -hmm. But uh, in addition, I do uh, I do enjoy being involved in the Manitoba Runners Association or the MRA uh, race series this year, most of which is is virtual. Um, but I find it's just a, a fun a fun thing to be uh, a fun group and a very committed group to work with and be involved with. And um, I just enjoy doing their races. Excellent. Couldn't agree more. So Sylvia, Dr. Lowen, where can people find you if they wanted to seek your um, advice and consultation? Where can they find you? How can they get in touch with you? I work at the Pan Am Clinic uh, in the sport medicine department and in the minor injury clinic. So certainly if anything is very urgent or acute, the minor injury clinic is uh, a place that uh, can be accessed. But I do book appointments directly via TAMI uh, in the sport medicine department. And uh, we do try and triage those and certainly bring in anything urgent as quickly as we can. Well, this has been like a mind-blowingly amazingly good discussion you gave us so much meaty information to digest when it comes to running injuries and and all the things that a runner should consider in both preventing and treating a running injury so thank you so much for taking the time today to come on our podcast and share your wealth of knowledge with us thank you very much to both you kim and carolyn for uh, for having me this has been a real pleasure